Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. This morning, we're going to look at the next two short parables found in verses 44 through 46. Now, usually I take a bit of time at this point to introduce our topic, but uh, I thought it would be uh, better if we just dive right into our text. I want us to read Then I'll just make an opening comment and we will go right into it and we'll spend the remaining time we have together looking at these words. Remember, this is Christ speaking directly to his disciples. And so these are the words to us as well. And let us pray and as we listen, prayerfully consider the significance of what he has for us that we may be encouraged in our faith. Verse 44, Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This passage is very familiar to us, isn't it? Um, These two parables here, uh, they are only found in the Gospel of Matthew, but they're some of the most famous and well-known parables that Christ spoke in all of the Gospels. Now, now here's the thing. The, The most common interpretation of these parables goes something like this, usually. The kingdom of heaven is worth giving everything up for. Or the gospel of God is so valuable that one joyfully surrenders all things in order to take hold of one, that is Christ, in whom are all things. Now, I actually just read to you uh, the summary of my sermon that I preached seven years ago. Okay? Um, And most sermons and most commentators, they prefer this interpretation when they come to these verses, verses 44 through 46. And certainly the truth that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and the gospel is worth giving everything up for. That is true. That is biblical. It is grounded in the word of God. The gospel of Christ calls us to surrender all for the sake of Christ and the kingdom. Other passages will tell you that Christ must be our number one concern. We must be all about his agenda, not our own. Seek first the kingdom, right? We studied earlier in Matthew chapter 6. Yet having studied these parables again and again in their immediate context and also its surrounding context and just looking from Old Testament into the new, I see that there's yet a better and I think more um, accurate interpretation of these verses. And I hope that by God's grace, I'll be able to present these truths to you this morning and that you too can be encouraged by these words through these parables. And, and I'm sure I tipped my hand already by just giving you the title of the sermon, um, A People for God's Own Possession. Now look with me at verse 36, Matthew 13, as we get into it. I will remind you that Jesus now is no longer speaking to the crowds. 
He is isolated in the room, they're in the house with his disciples, and he's speaking alone with them. Verse 36, and he left the crowds and went in to a house, the house that he probably came out of in verse one. They went back into the house, and this dialogue between the disciples and Christ begins, okay? Um, And these disciples here, they are already those who see and value Christ to some extent. Or in other words, they are allowed, they are blessed because they've been given the privilege to see who Jesus is. In other words, the the crowds, they're different. They don't see the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the scribes. They don't see the value of Christ and they reject him. And that's why he switches here to parables. But the disciples see and Jesus earlier on, he tells them to you, it has been granted. And so they see the value of Christ. And these parables then are spoken to encourage the disciples that Christ's kingdom will continue to grow. It will continue to expand because its expansion does not depend on the disciples, but on the king himself. Jesus, in revealing the mysteries of the kingdom here, basically puts the entire emphasis and accent and focus on himself, on God And so we have here three verses, two parables, and I think just one big idea. And here's the idea that we'll unpack. Really, Jesus is calling us, he's calling his disciples here to behold your God who graciously gives up his own life to purchase you to be his treasured possession. Behold your God who gives up everything, including his very life, in order to purchase a people for his own possession. Now, I want us to unpack now this big idea by looking at really three points. Number one, we're going to look at the treasure hunter. Who is this man? Number two, we're going to try to answer who is the treasure. And then we're going to look at this transaction that takes place. The treasure hunter, the treasure And then this transaction that takes place in both parables. So number one, the treasure hunter. And I'll just give you, um, give the answer right up. It's the king himself. And I will try to convince you from the word, from this parable, the immediate context and the surrounding context that he is talking about God or a representative of God. Now, the first question here we have to answer is to understand who is this main player? Who is this man? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. Or verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Who is this person? Who is this guy? And so, like I said above, most commentators and preachers, they immediately jump to the conclusion that this man represents Christians who discover the kingdom of heaven. And they discover the kingdom of heaven two ways, either by accident, like in verse 44, the man just digs around. I don't know why he's digging, but he's digging around. And then he happens to stumble upon a treasure. So by accident, and so the application is usually something like you just go around life, you know, you hit your curbs and, and, you know, bumps. And then by accident, someone, you know, you stumble upon the truth of the gospel and you believe. Um, Or another way is you discover intentionally, you seek for the truth, 
You seek for God like this merchant. He knows what he's looking for. And then you discover the gospel and you're willing to, for, to let go, forego everything for the sake of Christ. So they make this ultimate sacrifice to be part of the kingdom because the kingdom is of surpassing value or worth. And certainly this truth is emphasized throughout the gospels. This truth is emphasized in the letters of the New Testament. But as meaningful as this interpretation is, there is yet a better way, I think, that is contextually informed. Uh, And to, to get there, just consider the context of all the parables. Matthew chapter 13. If we go back to the beginning of Matthew 13, flip there with me, starting with the parable of the sower. Um, And if we ask this question, and I think this is a very important question to ask, who is the main character who does the main action in all of the parables? Who is the main player, main character doing the main thing in all of the parables? And so we begin with chapter uh, 13 here. In verse three, behold, the sower went out to sow. So we have the sower who scatters seed on various kinds of soils in verses three through eight. And then we have verse 24, we have this other man, again, main player in the entire parable. He also scatters seed in his field in verses uh, 24 through 30. And then there's an explanation that Jesus gives to this parable now in the house when they are together with his disciples. And, and then you come to the parables we studied two weeks ago, 31 through 33. And so in 31, this third parable, we have this mustard seed. Who is this man who sows a mustard seed again in his field? And then in verse 33, you have a woman. You have a woman who put leaven in bread or in flour. And pretty much universally, everyone agrees that the main player, the main character doing the main action in all of these parables is, is Christ himself or representative of God. Sometimes it's, it's hard to, to see. Is it the father who's doing the action or is it Christ? But regardless, it is God who's doing the main thing. Right? Jesus himself later on interprets, for instance, in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So he identifies this man as himself. I am the one who is sowing good seed. So Christ, the Messiah, right? The king is, is this good farmer who does the sowing. Uh, and then when you come to verses 31 through 33, who's the one who inaugurates the kingdom? Who's the one who announces the beginning of the kingdom? It is God who plants this tiny seed, this tiny mustard seed that it, that it grows to this enormous size. And contextually here, we conclude that it is God. Now, these two parables here, verses 44 through 46, they follow right after, notice, right after Jesus gives explanation to the parable of tares in which he identifies the man as the son of God. Who is this man? And you have to ask yourself, if the main character doing the main action is God in all the other previous parables, Is he not the main player in these two parables as well? Or did Jesus switch up his interpretation and he expected the disciples to understand and to get? Because notice in the rest of this passage, in the rest of this chapter, they don't ask for another interpretation. 
And if Jesus meant, notice this other detail here, if Jesus meant to identify this man as someone other than God, then he would have given them another interpretation. Because if you notice, there was a switch in the seed in in parable one. Okay, the seed was identified as the word of the kingdom. And then he identifies the seed as the sons of the kingdom. So he switches and he makes sure that they get it, that they understand. But here he doesn't with any other explanation. So given Jesus's own explanation, when we look at these two parables, it seems to me that we need to just, just go through some hermeneutical gymnastics here in order to switch the main player from God to men. Just a few short verses later. So friends, beloved, I, I would suggest to you that God is being spoken of as the main character in these parables, first of all. The kingdom is embodied in him. He is the king. He is the one who looks for the treasure. He is the one who finds the treasure. He gives everything up for the treasure. He is the one who rejoices over the treasure. We'll look at all of that in just a few moments. He's not only the man who finds the treasure, but God is the merchant, verse 44, or verse 45. He is like a merchant who seeks The the word that is used to describe the merchant as the seeking one, it suggests that he is a traveling merchant. And he's not just, you know, on the ship as a passenger. No, this merchant, he is a wholesale dealer. Okay, he's a dealer. He's in charge, in other words, of the entire mission. He's in charge of the entire operation. He tells them where to go so that he can look for precious pearls. He is an expert at pearls. He knows exactly what he's looking for. He knows the value of each pearl. And he has the means. He has the means to obtain the pearls he's after. It's very, very important for us to keep in mind here. So number one, the treasure hunter. Based on the immediate context here, I think it's, important for us to conclude that the treasure hunter is the king himself, Jesus, God in human form. Now, we come to the second question is, what is this treasure? What is this treasure? What are these pearls that he's after? So second point, the treasure. And again, I'll give you the answer up front and we will argue from scripture. The treasure, it is God's blessed people of the kingdom. God's blessed people of the kingdom. Before, however, we we look at the treasure, notice with me, go back and look in your text, Matthew 13, verse 44. Notice that the treasure is located, or Jesus says, hidden in the field, hidden in the field. And he earlier, again, in the same context, In fact, like probably five minutes before, he identifies the field in verse 38 as the world. The field is the world. And I think we need to be consistent if we're going to maintain the same character in all of these parables, then we need to maintain the same consistency and acknowledge that this element doesn't change as well. So this treasure that he's after is in the world. And Christ, the treasure hunter, 
intends to do something with it. Okay? Now, what about, again, if we look at all the scope of, of these parables, the secondary element, or we have the subject. The subject is God himself. The subject is the son of man here. What about the object? What's he dealing with in every parable? The secondary element. Consider this, that um, in the first parable, the uh, farmer, he sows seed. And then the seed here is identified as the word of the kingdom in verse 19. Okay? In the second one, the same farmer who owns a field, he sows a seed. But Jesus changes the interpretation from the word of the kingdom now to the sons of the kingdom. He's talking about people here. The sons of the kingdom. In the third parable, the seed, as we discussed before, this mustard seed, it, it represents the tiny beginning of the kingdom identified, it seems, by the 12, by the 12 disciples who then grow to be 120 in Acts 1, then more people repent and they multiply to 3,000 in Acts 2, and then so on and so forth, and over the millennia, it becomes Right, a multitude of believers, according to Revelation 7, whose numbers cannot be counted. So tiny beginning, yet influential, and it will multiply, and it will become great. What's he talking about? The secondary element here, the, the seeds he's talking about, people again. And in the fourth parable here, this influence of the kingdom is spread by the people who preach the word of the kingdom, and that is how more and more people repent and come to know the king. Earlier on, he says, you are the salt. You are the light of the world. So it only seems appropriate to see the secondary elements of this parable. These here, the treasure and the pearl, also referring to exactly the same people of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom. Okay? So that's first. But this not only fits with the immediate context, it also fits with the entire context of Scripture. It fits with the context of the Gospels. It fits with the context of New Testament letters. Consider who Jesus is speaking these words to. Remember that we need to keep in mind the historical significance, the historical setting in which these things are taking place. He is speaking to the 12 who are Jews. And these Jews, they have Old Testament background. They know Old Testament scriptures. How would they, listen, how would they have understood these symbolic or metaphorical references to the treasure and costly pearl? Not us who come to these passages with a you know, 21st century outlook, but they, how would they interpret them? I want to read a couple of passages and invite you to open with me. And I want to track from um, the law into the wisdom uh, letters or um, wisdom writings and into prophets and see if there is a fine line, if there's a fine thread that then would explain these parables to us. Open with me to Exodus chapter 5, or uh, 19 rather. Exodus Chapter 19, verse 5. This is the first five books that is referred to often as the law. And in Exodus 19, 5, 
God says this, now then, if you will keep, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. Now here we see that God is referring to the nation of Israel who had just just gone out of Egypt. He just rescued them from Egypt as his possession. You belong to me, God is saying. And those of you who have ESV, I don't know how many of you use ESV here, but those of you who do, your version says my treasured possession, my treasured possession. Other versions here, they may read something like a special possession, or if you have King James or uh, New King James, you would have something like peculiar treasure, referring to something rare, not normal. And that's because the Hebrew term used here as my possession in NASB, the Hebrew term that is used here, it basically uses to describe costly items, vast wealth of treasures of gold or or silver that belongs to anyone. So in fact, Solomon in in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse eight, he describes all the gold and all the silver that he had accumulated with the same term, my precious possession. And so notice what else God says in this word. He's in in this verse here in 19.5. All the earth is mine. All the people of the world belong to me. It's not like I just own you. No, the entire for all the earth is mine. I own the entire field, the entire land. But there's a special group of people, Israel, that God chose to be out of everybody else, his treasured, his precious possession, his special people. Now, if we move forward to the wisdom literature, uh, Psalms, for instance, don't open there, but let me read Psalm 135, verse four, and look what the psalmist says. He only reiterates what God declared to his people. In Psalm 135, four, he says, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel for his own possession. Again, Israel for his own treasured possession. And now go to Isaiah. Can you go to Isaiah 43? It's a very well-known passage. In fact, Isaiah 43, verse 7, we often often read this passage and, and maybe memorize, right? Everyone who's called by my name for whom I have created for my glory. Why did God create you? We ask, and the answer is he created you for his own glory. But look what he says before. Isaiah 43, verse 1. I want to read the first four verses. And and, and pay attention to the language. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba in your place. Why? Why did you do that, Lord? Verse four, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give up other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Wow. Again, the address here is to the sons of Israel. 
And in these verses, notice that God reassures them of his love for them. He says, I formed you. I called you my own. You belong to me. He says, I will protect you in verse two. He says, I gave up other nations for your sake. I saved you in verse three. I redeemed you. Why? Why? The answer, because you are, notice, precious in my sight. Because I love you. That's why I did it. And in fact, he says, I am ready to give up more for you. I will give up other men in your place and other people in exchange for your life. That is how much I care for you. Why? Because you are precious. This, this Hebrew term precious means you are prized, you are costly, you are rare. You are rare. And it doesn't that remind you of the parable of the rare one pearl of great value. But here's the thing. If you continue to follow this phrase, this special treasure or his own possession into the New Testament, you will come to a passage we read earlier on in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who are the you? For you, he says, are a chosen race. Who are the you? Well, if you go back to the beginning of 1 Peter 1, one, Peter, in introducing his letter, he says, I write to the saints scattered throughout Pontia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these are scattered saints. They are Gentile saints who were at one point, verse 10, not a people of God. They didn't belong to God, but now they are his very precious possession. Now God considers them who were outcast at one point to be his treasured possession. And so going from Israel, God had his own nation, ethnic nation in the Old Testament that he worked through. And now when Christ came, now he is referring to his treasure possession as to the church, including the Gentiles who are called into the kingdom. The disciples don't know that yet because Jesus is revealing the mysteries of the kingdom one step at a time. So go back with me to Matthew chapter 13 now. Matthew chapter 13, the man here is the king himself and his treasure is the subject of his kingdom, the precious, prized, costly, blessed people who know and who love the king. Now, at this point, you may be asking yourself or maybe wondering, what is so costly about me, right? Like, I know who I am. And that's, in fact, one of the objections that is often raised is like, why would, why would God do that? Um, scripture is pretty clear that we are wretched sinners. Are we worthy of anything? 
Romans 10 or 5.10, we are enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's a very important phrase. Even as the rest, you are no different from the rest. What's so precious? What is so valuable about you? What is so costly? Why such high regard for sinners? And I think two, two answers maybe can, can be offered to this objection or even if you're wrestling with this. You know, number one, think about this. Even a condemned sinner has value because he's created in the image of God. If you go back to Genesis chapter one, God created man, male and female, he created in his own image. And men even fallen, think about this as the crown jewel of creation. Isn't that what David marvels at in Psalm 8 when he says, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. This is after the fall. Mankind continues to reflect the image of God, although in a very marred and in a very fallen state. That is why we fight for sanctity of human life. Why? Because God created men special, all men. But I think there's a second reason and and really the ultimate cause for this appreciation, for this value and treasure God, friends, he sees some as precious and prized because he loves them and he considers them precious. That's it. That's why. In other words, those who are in his kingdom are precious because of his choice. He decided. Why did he choose Israel out of everybody? They didn't have special abilities In fact, earlier on, he says, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. No, I could have gone with the Philistines. I could have chosen the Canaanites. Why? Because they were more powerful than you. They were more impressive than you, but I didn't. I chose you. Why? Because of God's choice. Because God desired to show his love on some. That's the only reason why. It has nothing to do with them with their merit, their value. It has everything to do with him, who he is and what he chooses to give up for his people. That's it. You can read Ezekiel if you're writing down notes. Just write down Ezekiel 16 and and go home tonight or sometime this week and read Ezekiel 16. And you tell me what God thought of of Israel when he chose them. Very graphic language. And this is the case with us Gentiles who are invited to know the king and to participate in his kingdom. I just, let me read you a couple of verses in Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one, verse six says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Listen, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious name and grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
I think the point here is clear. It is all about God's love. It is all about his kindness and it is all about his grace. Our value is assigned by God who loves us. That's it. So we looked at the treasure hunter who is the king himself, his treasure, who are the people of this kingdom. And now we come to the final consideration here. Having considered these final elements, I want us to put the pieces together and we come to the transaction. To the transaction. Verse 44, let's read again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he got, had and bought it. Beloved, Jesus places the emphasis in these parables not on the treasure, but on the treasure hunter. Not on the treasure, but on the treasure hunter. In fact, most of the words in these parables, they are attributed to the main character, not to the treasure. They are attributed to the man. Let me read this again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found, and he hid, and from joy over it, he goes, and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. What is the emphasis? Who is the emphasis on? Friends, the spotlight is on the king and his work, not on the treasure. And I think this is the point. Jesus wants his disciples to walk away thinking about God and what he is doing rather than the treasure. So what is this work that he is doing? What are the main actions that the king performs that this merchant and treasure hunter do? Well, number one, I want us to see that the king seeks his people. The king seeks his people. And in verse 45, we see that the merchant goes out to seek fine pearls. I mean, he is very deliberate in his search. He knows what he's looking for. The treasure hunter, he is digging in order to find the treasure. Uh, and, and once again, this man cannot be a sinner, diligently seeking the world and sacrificing all to find the kingdom of heaven. Scripture, friends, is very clear. No man searches for God. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. Romans 3.11, there is none who understands, there is none who seek for God. John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, me draws him. Friends, it is the shepherd. It is the shepherd king who is looking for the lost sheep. The term here, seeking it means to depart from one place and to arrive at another. There's movement involved. 
You're not just in one place looking around. You are moving from place to place. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He departed from heaven and arrived on earth to accomplish this rescue mission to seek and to save. We sing this wonderful hymn, that is based on Philippians chapter two. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. This is what this parable is trying to communicate. This is what Philippians chapter two communicates. In fact, consider the context of Matthew up to this point. Jesus dines with tax collectors and sinners in chapter nine, verse 10. Why? He says, because I came in order to, what? Find and heal the sick because I'm the physician, I'm the doctor. In 936, Jesus seeks all the distressed, sees all the distressed sheep, He's moved with compassion. And right in the next chapter, chapter 10, he calls his disciples and he says, guess what we're doing, guys? We're going to go out to look for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Because that's why I'm here and you're going to join on the mission with me. We're going to go look for them. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said it very plainly, very clearly, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Church, it ought to encourage us to know that Jesus never seeks us for some grudging responsibility to duty. He does not merely stumble across us, but he searches for us. He knows what he wants. He pursues us. He pursues us as a man who would pursue a woman to be his bride and to be his wife. Jesus has this wholehearted and loving response to his father's purposes and our eternal well-being. That's what Jesus does. And isn't it surprising that he calls his people, the church, the bride, my bride. And what Paul calls the church in Ephesians chapter two or chapter five. But not only does he seek the people, he also, notice, purchases the people, purchases them. Now, I want you to see this language that Jesus employs here. There is a transaction going on. And there is a real sale. There's exchange of goods here happening, like currency is involved. Both words, sold and bought are used here twice. He sells and he buys in verse 44. And then in verse 46, he sold and he bought. And I think that's intentional. That is intentional here. Because the emphasis here is on this deal. Listen, we cannot conclude that the treasure is the gospel or the treasure is Christ or the treasure is the kingdom because you cannot buy yourself into the kingdom. You cannot spend any money to get in. Why? Because it's a gift. To know Christ is a gift. To possess eternal life is a gift. The only exchange that happens is sin and death, sin and punishment. That's the only exchange. If we want to exchange, that's what 
is happening. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. We accumulate something and we get paid for it in death because we sin before a holy God. But when it comes to the gift or when it comes to eternal life, it is free gift of God, Paul says in Romans 6.23. But listen, someone paid for your salvation. You didn't. I didn't. Someone paid for us. And it is the same man who found the treasure. He is the one who paid for the treasure. How did he pay for the treasure? With his own blood. With his own blood. Numerous passages we can go to in the New Testament. I'll give you a, a few Acts 20, 28, Paul is instructing the pastors and, and shepherds of the church in Ephesus. And he says, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Transaction, cost. I purchased these people. You better take care of them, Paul says. God cares for them, so should you. Open to Ephesians chapter 5. I already referenced this passage, but it's important for us to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Who's the pattern? Christ, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Think about the merchant that Jesus references here. Usually the merchant, he would, he would buy a gem of great value with the idea to resell it. Resale. In other words, if he sees value in this thing and he's willing to pay $3 million, I'm sure if I put this up for auction, someone is going to pay 4 or 5 I just got to keep it long enough. But that's the idea. You get precious thing in order to make money off of it. However, this merchant's intent is different that Jesus references it here. Jesus Christ purchased us so that he can eternally possess us. And to do that, he gives up all that he has. That's the point. He gave his very life. He gave himself. Why? In order to present to himself. He wasn't going to let these people go. It wasn't a simple transaction to make money off of. No, this was a purchase to own for himself. We were just singing, all the redeemed ones washed by his blood come and rejoice in his great love. And what's the call? Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Praise him. In Revelation 5, 9, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Friends, we have no means to purchase anything. We must be purchased. We must be purchased. And how blessed are we that Jesus moved with love towards the Father 
and us, and he gave himself up for us. But not only that, there's another outcome that I want you to notice here in verse 44. Look what he says. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells and he buys. So he not only seeks and he not only purchases his people, but he rejoices over his people. He rejoices over his people. Think about this. The author of Hebrews, he tells us that, quote, for the joy said before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews 12, 2. And what was this, what was this joy that was said before Christ? It is the joy of being glorified and having us in glory with him. It is the joy of being glorified and having us in glory with him. It was in order to obtain us that he paid this great price so that he, we may be sharers with him in the glories of the kingdom. Galatians 1 verse 4, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. He did that so that we would enjoy glory with him. Before the cross, he prays to his father and he says in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's the joy that Jesus is after. Completing the work and seeing the result of his work come into this joy. And isn't it surprising, right, that Jesus says in Luke 4, uh, 15, 7, he says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who need no repentance. And I think we oftentimes think of angels are rejoicing around the throne of God and they are probably rejoicing. But more than angels, I think the son is rejoicing. The father is rejoicing. Because the work that they worked for is being accomplished when sinners come into the kingdom by confessing Christ. When sinners rejoice in Christ, he rejoice over them. And Zephaniah, Zephaniah 3.17, is a very interesting verse. He tells us that when, when all those repentant, when all those lowly sinners, he's referring to Israel in the last days, basically, when they are around God and God is in their midst, look what God is going to do. He says, he, God, will exalt over you with joy. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. This is God rejoicing over his treasure. This is amazing. This is God's response. Why is he rejoicing over his treasure? Well, it's because his treasure, us, we, sinners who were unworthy of anything, rejoice now in him who saved us, who sought us out, who purchased us, who called us into his eternal glory. 
Isaiah 62, verse 5, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. We don't often think about this, but I think it is very appropriate as we think through the implications of these parables here. I, I don't know how you cannot respond, but with praise and worship and gratitude to this. Behold your God, friends, who graciously gave up his own life to purchase you as his treasured possession. Where do we go from here? Like, what, is, what should we be doing? Well, we should be beholding God. We should understand who this treasure hunter is. We should marvel at his grace, his love, his kindness towards us, towards you. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. It is God's kingdom. It is his plan. They are his people. It is his power that will preserve them and, and for them to count then their blessings because they were secure because of the king. He sought them out. He paid for them. He rejoices over them. Not because of them, not because of you, but because of him. Because of him. I want to read last final passage. Titus 2, just listen. This is it's now Paul reflecting on this. And in Titus 2, verse 11, he says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Friends, the reason why we're motivated and we're encouraged to do what pleases the Lord, to obey him, to love him, to sacrifice, to serve, to, to preach, to proclaim, to evangelize, and all of that, these good deeds here, is because we belong to him. He purchased us. He sought us out. Will we not respond in this manner? That's the whole point. And that was the encouragement to the disciples. I got you. To what extent did they understand it? They did some, but not fully. But they will. And then they're going to go forward knowing that they belong to the king and their goal is to advance that kingdom. May you be encouraged in your walk with the Lord to see him as the one who really gives up all of his resources, the very lifeblood of his son, to purchase you, to love you, so that you can rejoice in him. Father, we thank you for this great reminder. We are precious in your sight. We thank you that Christ wholeheartedly obeyed your, Lord, purposes, fulfilled your purposes by loving the Father and loving us. 
And that joy motivated him to give up all, including his very life. And may we reflect the heart of Christ now too by being zealous for Christ, being motivated for the one who purchased us to give up all because he is worthy. We ask in his name, amen.